back to the Foreign Desk. I'm Lisa Daftari. Today, we have another foreign policy power panel focusing entirely on Iran. A lot going on in the news, as if you've been following. Of course, Iran's President uh, Ebrahim Raisi just finished up at the uh, UN giving his annual speech. Uh, the same week where $6 billion in frozen assets were unfrozen and given to the Iran regime in a prisoner swap. And of course, we commemorate the one-year anniversary of the Massa Amini murder, which sparked protests and a revolution inside Iran. Uh, there's so many experts and, and, and analysts that uh, we'd love to call upon for this subject uh, here at the Foreign Desk. Of course, we've been speaking with many of them over the course of many years, particularly this last year. Uh, but I've selected a handful and, of course, only a, a few of those, again, who we very much respect and look up to and admire on, on this topic. Um, these three have played an integral role. Each playing their own specific role uh, in the last year and sharing their expertise with us. They've, they're all friends of the Foreign Desk, and uh, I, it's my pleasure to welcome them to the show. I'd first like to introduce you to Behnam Talablu, who's a senior fellow at FDD. His focus is on Iranian political and security issues for more than a decade. Prior to that, he worked at an arms control think tank, uh, in Washington. He's also testified on Iran issues before committees in U.S. Congress and the Canadian Parliament and provided testimony at the House of Commons. He's the author of Arsenal, Assessing the Islamic Republic of Iran's Ballistic Missile Program. Welcome to the show, Ben. And of course, Jason Brodsky, who's been on the show before. He's currently the P policy director at Yuani United Against Nuclear Iran, Previously, a Middle East analyst and editor at Iran International TV. He's been at the Wilson Center, a fellow at the White House in the executive office of the president. And his uh, specialties include leadership dynamics in Iran, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard, Shia militia, uh, U.S. Middle East policy and everything else. He's been featured in foreign policy, uh, foreign affairs, national interest, Newsweek and so many others. And welcome to the show again, Jason. And of course, Arzu Rashidian, um, Iranian-American healthcare professional. Uh, so she's uh, actually has, a, has, has a, a real job, not like the rest of us. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, she's a longtime activist and a protest and rally organizer, member of the Constitutional Party of Iran's liberal, liberal Democrat and Institute for Voices of Liberty. Welcome all to the program. Those bios are long, but obviously... Um, very much worthy of reading each and every word of them. Welcome to the show. I have a lot to cover, but I want to start with the latest, of course. Uh, Raisi coming to the UN, lots of opposition before his trip, during his trip, after his trip, because we knew what was going to happen, right? When you give a terrorist, a, a murderous dictator the podium, what's going to happen? He's going to spew lies. He's going to spin the narrative. He's going to disrespect the same, the same country that gave him that podium. He disrespects the United States. Um, calls us terrorists, right? Uh, basically chalks up the entire Massa Amini year of protests as fake news. And um, yeah, we just let him do it. Ben, I want to start with you. How damaging um, is it to have Iran's president, the Islamic Republic's president, come to uh, the UN, particularly this year, when the Iranian people are doing so much to really shift the narrative and tell the world this isn't our government. They don't represent us. And yet, here we go again. He gets the podium. He gets to tell his version of the story. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, Lisa, Arzu, and Jason. Always a pleasure to share the panel with you, virtual or in real life. 
Um, I, I think you hit the nail right on the head there because this is an own goal and it's part of a larger series of mother of own goals that unfortunately the Biden administration uh, appears to be engaging in right now vis-a-vis -vis strategies and values uh, against the government of the Islamic Republic. Uh, in essence, you couldn't have a sharper divide between that which is morally right and strategically sound and that which is morally abhorrent and strategically a major setback. And preventing uh, Ibrahim Raisi, who uh, has committed crimes against humanity, popularly known as the Butcher of Tehran, as a 29-year-old, had signed off on, on uh, several thousand death warrants uh, in Iran at the tail end of the Iran-Iraq war, and then failed upwards across Iran's injustice system, uh, was sanctioned by the U.S. in 2019. And actually, this is not uh, just his first time coming to the U.S., coming to, the, uh, to New York to speak at the UNGA. Uh, there was last year as well. He virtually participated under COVID as well. Long story short here, to have this person continue uh, the trend of Iran increasingly looking for strands within American domestic politics to take and use and abuse and try to deflect pressure against the Islamic Republic, which knows it's weak right now, which has been facing, again, a one-year nationwide anti-regime protest by the Iranian people, which continues and is being harshly repressed both, both physically and in cyberspace by Iran's security apparatus is, again, I think there's no better way to put it uh, than a, an own goal or a strategic own goal or, or a moral own goal. So that is, that is kind of how I'm reading the tea leaves on this. Uh, I, I know there was movement in Congress to try to revoke uh, yeah. entry granted uh, to select regime officials of which Ibrahim Raisi was one. I know that is still making its way. And the question was then and is now, will it have uh, been effective? Would it have been in time? Uh, and would the White House even have agreed to it had it even uh, passed both chambers? Uh, so there's there's a lot to unpack there, but um, following this arrival of Raisi uh, was also the announcement of the finalization of this hostage deal, this $6 billion deal, which uh, I would say, unfortunately, is really akin to ransom, if not ransom itself. And right. both the coming of Raisi and the provision of these funds, albeit through an indirect mechanism through Switzerland and Qatar via South Korea, is in my way, uh, with immense respect, uh, a slap in the back or a slap in the face, a knife in the back or a slap in the face to the Iranian people by the Biden administration, which for one year has professed to stand with them in principle, but then when it came down to practice, could not stand with them in practice. Right. Um, Jason, before we get to the six billion and the, the, the prisoners swap, um, you know, I've, I've actually seen a lot of the Yuani events on the sidelines of, of the uh, UN General Assembly in, in previous years. I don't know what you had planned this year. Um, you've, you've been a part of that protest, basically saying, let's bring attention to the fact that a terrorist will be coming to New York and you're going to be giving him a podium. And you have had some great events. I attended your conference last year. I know you've even had, um, you know, protests on the street where you have very, very high ranking officials and others who are speaking about how important it is not to let him come back to New York. We also had legislation uh, come up, you know, as, as Benham mentioned. Does any of this even count? I mean, is anyone listening? Could there ever be a day where not only do we not have him, uh, not have the Iran regime head up very important human rights uh, committees at the UN, which is a complete joke, but actually have them not come, not give them the podium, not allow them to spew this garbage uh, on U.S. soil? 
Well, I'd like to say it does uh, count because it increases public awareness of the record of the Iranian regime. So trying to uh, pump up the volume to uh, educate uh, the American people and the world uh, of uh, their crimes against humanity uh, is uh, going to be very important. Uh, I would say this, I agree with Ben on comments. I think that the performance of the United States government this week has been an embarrassment. Uh, I would say that uh, even putting aside the hostage uh, deal uh, and whatever one's opinions are of that, the United States could have taken several steps that would have uh, helped at the bare minimum uh, highlight the repression in Iran and the woman life freedom movement, but it did not. The president only made a passing reference to Iran's destabilizing activities in the nuclear file in his speech. He didn't even mention the release of the U.S. hostages in his remarks, which was rather curious. I was expecting him to say something about that. He didn't make a reference to the anniversary of Masa Amini's murder. Uh, and that was another missed opportunity for him. Uh, he obviously, in my view, does not like speaking about Iran. He's uncomfortable about it uh, for whatever reason. And so that was a missed opportunity. I also think it has been a disgrace to see that the U.S. has once again had an overly generous uh, approval of visas for Iranian officials accompanying Ibrahim Raisi and his delegation. Mm -hmm. I agree with Benham. He should not be on U.S. soil at all. But the State Department's justification is they have a UN obligation to have a head of state, head of government uh, come uh, uh, address the uh, UN uh, General Assembly. Okay. But let's look at the people who were in his delegation. We had Raisi's chief of staff, Golam Hossein Asmaili, who is sanctioned under the EU for human rights abuses as the former head of the Iranian prisons organization. And it gets worse. There was another man in his delegation, Moshtaba Amini, who was one of this? Uh, who was one of the individuals who was implicated in the storming of the UK embassy in Tehran in 2011? And he has been the producer of the series Gondo, which has glorified extraterritorial repression and hostage taking. And he too received a visa. So. The State Department obviously uh, has been uh, uh, really remiss here in uh, demonstrating to the Iranian leadership that its actions have consequences. And they could have taken basic steps like that to signal to the world that, okay, we have our hostages home, but we are not going to stop holding the regime accountable. I do not count sanctions on Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who... Right should be sanctioned, okay, but is completely irrelevant to the current power structure in Tehran as looking tough uh, on the Islamic Republic. So th yeah. that, that is how I would address your question. Yeah, I mean, those are, are all great points. I think that uh, the, the sanctions on Ahmadinejad was like the Austin Powers $1 million moment where you're like, what? You know, it's uh, fine. Great. But uh, we, we all know that that has no teeth. And, you know, to the Iranian people, they're not stupid, right? Uh, all very much aware of what's going on politically, have, having gone through this year, which to them might be the, the best chance they've ever had at toppling this regime after 44 years. And then to watch, you know, the White House really crumble that uh, in, 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 a, in a matter of a week. It's funny how it all came together this week in terms of the prisoner swap and the UN and Massa's anniversary and uh, really coming to a head where the, the, the people in Iran, I mean, 
are they giving up? What's going on? And Arzu, that's why I wanted to bring you into this conversation. Um, you're not actually one of the, 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 the political analysts that people turn to, and maybe not somebody that people see on the screen, but you are working behind the, behind the scenes very, very diligently. If any one of you have, has ever been to an Iran and, and pro-democracy uh, rally or demonstration, you've seen her there. She travels across the country um, really on her own time and her own money and her own interest to really uh, help organize these protests and to really rally up the um, expatriate community to support what's going on inside Iran. Arzu, my question to you is, especially this week, now I know you've obviously been following this very closely for years, not just the past year, but particularly this week, I know you were integral in uh, organizing the one-year anniversary of, of Massa's death uh, this this past weekend with the rallies in, in Los Angeles. Are people getting fatigue in the sense that they're saying, oh, you know what, if, if all these things are going to happen, if they're going to get $6 billion, if they're going to be allowed to come to the UN, if they're going to be given this X, Y, and Z, who are we to come out onto the streets or or is it rallying people and, and really motivating them to go out and do more uh, in, in order to bring about freedom and democracy in Iran? Thanks, Lisa. It's such a pleasure and honor to be here with everyone. Um, I, I really appreciate everybody's hard work. I think we all have a passion and um, a, a drive for this cause. Um, I think that, well, well, first I wanted to mention about the UN. So there's a, uh, you know, Jason mentioned that there's a State Department has issued visa to several of the entourage that's come with Raisi. Um, one in particular that really concerns me is on U.S. soil threatening activists, saying that anyone that is an enemy of the Islamic Republic should tremble. And that that makes me as an activist slightly nervous. That's on U.S. soil. Um, this was told on live television with an Iran uh, reporter. And that's a high concern for me. That's a threat. And that that is not um, that's something that the U.S. Department should definitely take into consideration. I think that that video needs to be viral. Um, it's all over Twitter. I made it viral as well. Uh, that concerns me first and foremost. Um, as a protester and a longtime activist, um, and as a mentor to other activists, we have a whole new breed of generation. So we're not alone anymore, Lisa and Jason and Ben, um, which is so exciting because the dedication and hard work that I'm seeing from this next generation and individuals that want to be involved is so. Um, heartwarming and it's I don't feel alone and um, I know others of us that have been doing this for so long I, I don't feel alone uh, but but what I do like to do is to mentor them and let them know that well you first have to get to know the enemy you've got to know who your enemy is and this enemy will do anything it's it's survival of the fittest that's that that's what that regime is so they'll do anything and everything to try to stay in power so and it's and it's a cause that takes time and you have to be strategic. You have to have a personal life. I tell activists, you've got to um, stay strong and not give up and continue to be a voice because it's so important that what I've noticed within this past year with activists is, um, and especially with this, with the one year for Massa, um, you know, the numbers were very large in Los Angeles, over 20,000 attended. And, um, you know, we did a great job. The city of Los Angeles, you know, the Iranian diaspora from all over the United States tries to come to Los Angeles because it is the largest um, diaspora. But what I do think is, is I keep hearing, are they going to leave? What What's going to happen? And for someone who's attended and helped organize protests for all these years, and as a child who attended um, the protests in LA, what I tell them is it takes time. 
and your voice makes a difference. And, and I think that that's the key. Um, I worked with actually Yuani, Jason knows this back in 2010 and, and their demonstrations and billboards and, you know, the drive-bys with the trucks and, and stuff, those, those are great. And I think that that's what um, a lot of individuals forget is, is that this, this takes time. We're dealing with a strategic enemy that has a lot of money and our favorite, the black gold. So they have oil. And that's something that, you know, we, we as activists have to know that it's going to take some time, but to continue to expose them, protesters in New York, I mean, all over the world are exposing this regime. And I think it's such a key to be in front of media. Media is the key. The work that you do, Lisa, um, that many of us do that try to get in front of a camera just to be heard is what's key. And I think it's the burnout is balance it is it there is no burnout because this is a long time struggle and a fight with them but just to continue to have a balanced life so that you can continue to be a voice and to continue to uh, you know expose this regime for what it is and i think we've all done all of us on this panel and around the world have done a great job by doing that thank you so much um i think that's some some real sound advice ben up to that point I mean, I guess I, I get asked this question probably multiple times uh, per day, especially over the last few months where people don't hear about the daily protests anymore. And, you know, um, we just had the anniversary of Mass Amini, but we haven't seen so much as much as we we saw in the beginning. And now they got the six billion, another life lifeline for the regime. Um, what's your assessment? Has this movement fizzled out? Is it something that you know, the Iranian people just think this is not going to happen because this is not the right time. What's your assessment of, of what's going on right now? Well, my assessment of, of what's going on internally <clears throat> is that obviously both the regime knew and the population knew about this one year anniversary coming up. You saw a ramp up uh, in executions in the spring and the summer of this year, making the Islamic Republic already on track to at least meet or beat its previous record of executions. Uh, in the country, as well as a series of arrests in uh, August, as well as September, uh, plus uh, in early to mid-September, concurrent with uh, the anniversary, the military encirclement of the provinces that uh, Masamini uh, is from and her family uh, lived in. Uh, so you had the Islamic Republic knowing full well what the population's play was going to be and trying to bring as much coercive and repressive forces to try to tamp down those numbers as they get to the one year anniversary. Concurrent with that, uh, I remember, um, and Jason, I think you remember this piece, or you may have shared it as well. There was a, uh, maybe two years ago or, or, or three years ago, uh, there was an editor at Bloomberg, Bobby Ghosh, if I'm not mistaken, who wrote a really good piece about uh, the pressure Iran was under, the regime was under at the tail end of the Trump administration uh, because of oil prices, because of protests, because of the killing of Soleimani, because of the diplomatic isolation. Um, and uh, he called the, the, the piece Iran's Annus Horribilis, Iran's Horrible Year. I think most unfortunately, between protest anniversary to protest anniversary, the regime has had the opposite now. And I'm flirting right. with writing a piece about the opposite of Iran's Annus Horribilis. It's breaking out of the box diplomatically. It's trying to court uh, U.S. partners and allies in the Middle East. It's trying to do everything to send a message that is designed to dissolve the will of the Iranian protester to stay on the street. When they get six billion from America in whatever form, in whatever fashion, that message to the Iranian people translates as, for us, for hypothetically putting yourself in Raisi and Khamenei's shoes, they will say to the people, for us who chant death to America, we can get six billion. 
the right. American government, the American population, the U.S. Congress, the U.S. media will not stand behind you. Who do you think you are to stand up against us? And this is designed to erode this pattern of protest that we've seen in Iran from late 2017 to present, where it's more geographically diverse than before. It's more demographically diverse than before. It's more socioeconomically diverse than before. There are tons and tons of different iterations of this Rubik's Cube of Iranians who all converged on one central truth, which is that the government of the Islamic Republic is the root of their problems, and they will use every single opportunity environmental issues, social issues, political issues, economic issues to continue to protest. Gone are the days of a decade between protests. Now there's mere months between protests. And mm -hmm. since the mass anniversary last year, mere days. So I don't see the fear that the regime has tried to instill thus far as sh pulling the plug on, on the protests, but the regime has been nonetheless trying to cut at the will of the protesters to remain on the streets. But given those structural factors that remain, given the dis dissonance between state and society in Iran, uh, there will be more protests. And that means the big question is, what is Washington going to do about it? Right. Um, and to your point, I actually want to stay with you, Benham, because of your expertise in uh, Iran's weapons program, only to really set this stage as to what the Biden administration is perhaps doing. Uh, on the part of Iran's regime, of course, they're walking into New York City with their heads held way up high, as you said, getting $6 billion for a prisoner deal that was already lopsided. We're giving them five terrorists or sanctions evaders or criminals uh, for five people who were there visiting family and friends, already a lopsided deal, but here's $6 billion to boot because we just love you so much. Um, the same week, again, allowing him to come spew his lies, change the narrative, say whatever they want to say. And of course, we see Iran's regime today announce that they have basically gender apartheid into law, where women who don't wear their hijab properly will be, their, their prison sentences will be longer and harsher. So they, they basically learn nothing. Our fear for many of us was that, oh, the regime's going to back off a little bit. They're going to give the, the Iranian people some breathing space after the Massa Act. And some people will be fooled by these reforms and they're going to get off the streets because, well, now women can, can, can actually go out without their headscarves, without their hijabs. And then the, the pressure will be off the regime. But it's actually the opposite. The regime is so emboldened and so enthused by the behavior of the White House and the policies that they've seen from the Biden administration that they're actually going harder. They're going bolder. They're going roguer. And here we are. Now, to the same point, we're also seeing them march forward with their nuclear program in ways that we had not seen over the past almost three years, right? Shutting over 27 IAEA cameras, denying access to the uh, inspectors, uh, enriching uranium somewhere between 50 and 80 percent. We're getting various reports, but there is an increase in enrichment uh, and obviously developing weapons to sell to Russia and do whatever else. And now they have six billion dollars to play with on top of that. I, I'm only setting the stage back now to get to my one question. A lot of people believe, perhaps, that the Biden administration is doing all of this to set the stage to say, we need another nuclear deal. We need another JCPOA. And that is what they will try to do before leaving office. What are your thoughts? I think so much of what you said ties into conversations I'm having publicly and privately now in Washington, which is, again, not about politics and not about policy 
but actually just about philosophy. And this is the Biden administration's philosophy, which is using all of the threat markers that you just discussed in great detail on the weapons front, on the nuclear front, on the Iran great power competition front, on the Iran domestic repression front, using all of that, which would spur all of us on this call and would spur all of your viewers to say, wow, we need to rethink the direction we're headed on Iran. Wow, we need to really stop pulling our punches on Iran. Wow, we really need to call a spade a spade. Wow, we really need to do a better job of standing with the Iranian people. All of this stuff that would spur us to move in this direction is most unfortunately being used as a data point to further their argument in the pro-deal direction. And so what that means is every time Iran's enrichment level goes up, they say, aha, and therefore we need a deal. Every time Iran tightens ties with Russia, they say, aha, and therefore we need deconfliction and de-escalation. Every time uh, you know, Iran's, uh, you know, does some kind of crazy escalation in Iraq or Syria or transfers a new weapon or does some attack with the IRGC or with drones, they say, aha, therefore we've provoked Iran, we need to back off. And so you see this feeding in like a mosaic into this larger idea that, that you know, you could say Team Biden has this obsession, this kind of dogmatic obsession with a deal. And really the only reason they don't have a deal is not because they haven't tried. Uh, it's because Iran hasn't deigned it necessary. They're, they're basically, for lack of a better word, I don't know how to translate this from Persian, but they're giving uh, Biden and America, they're giving them bilach. They're giving them the Iranian equivalent of the middle finger because they're so emboldened. I mean, think logically. Why would Iran settle for a 2.4 million uh, oil uh, a barrel per oil a barrel per day of oil export deal legally when illegally Iran can export over 2 million barrels per day and not feel any pressure. That's where we are right now. Iran is at record high exports, meaning all of the things that we have concerns about, foreign policy, domestic policy, there is now more resources to fund it. And the problem is the Biden administration sees pressure to try to constrain it as unconstructive rather than constructive. And fundamentally, this is a debate over philosophy. Do you think pressure is helpful Mm-hmm. or pressure is harmful. And like two ships passing in a night, these two conversations, these two different types of people, these two camps will never meet. And we are seeing right now the real world, real time costs of those two things never meeting because all of what you said is still keeping them locked in in this direction. You know, it's interesting, Jason. I just had a thought. I, you know, I think a lot of people could listen to this conversation and say, you, you guys are so naive to think that all of this revolves around the White House and the White House's policies, right? And there are people who do think that we give too much credence to the White House's role. I actually recently wrote an op-ed in Newsweek about how uh, President Carter owes the Iranian people an apology because of his part in the Iranian revolution of 1979. And I think people either got that and were like, oh my God, yes, this is, you know, as Iranians, this is what we grew up with. I mean, I, I never lived a day under Carter as a president, but I knew growing up that he was mentioned at the dinner table many times and not in a very flattering way. Um, and I know uh, Ben Hump's shaking his head because this is this is what, what we've always had. Um, and, and now I think, and then others were like, oh, are you crazy? This is, this is, they've, they voted Raisi into office. I'm seeing a lot of that on Twitter in the last 24 hours. Oh, you're dreaming. They voted for him. They did this. Jason, my, I, I want you to set the, 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 the record straight for us. For those of us who maybe are relying too much on the White House and for those who believe that it's naive to even think that, that, that Washington DC has a say in any of this. You worked in the White House, you worked close to the president. How much of a role can the United States have in overthrowing 
Iran's regime, specifically Iran, I don't mean any country, specifically Iran's regime, and what does that look like and what will it take? That's a very good question, Lisa. I, I think that we have tools, but we are not using them effectively. And uh, there are limits to our power, and there are hard, these are hard problems uh, that multiple administrations, Democratic and Republican, uh, have grappled with. But I think that at the end of the day, what the problem has been in this administration, the Biden administration, has been that the Iran file has not been a priority. And China, Russia uh, have been the predominant focus, and Iran has been kind of an afterthought. Uh, there has been uh, not been a lot of creative thinking as to how to fashion a comprehensive strategy. Uh, instead, we spend two plus years trying to revive a dead JCPOA only to kind of pivot into this weird period where there was policy drift, no one was quite sure what was going on, and then suddenly people woke up and there was this informal de-escalatory understanding uh, situation that we're in now. The White House and the State Department don't publicly acknowledge it. Uh, and uh, there is really not a clear set of direction moving forward, not to mention that the president has not given any substantive remarks about his Iran policy since uh, he's been in office. So there's a lot of confusion. And when there's confusion, that generates conspiracy theories. And that generates toxicity into the Iran debate. And I think that this is a communication problem. And I think it's a broader policy problem uh, as well. So there is a lot that the White House and the administration, uh, they, they bear, they, they bear their full, you know, a certain amount of blame here. Uh, but I have to say also, um, Congress has a role here to play. And uh, I know Benham uh, uh, testified uh, last week uh, before the House Foreign Affairs Committee for, by the way, what was a very good hearing, I thought, very substantive hearing. Uh, but that was the first public hearing specifically focused on Iran since 2020. You know, the lack of oversight from Congress uh, is just unacceptable here. And uh, that has to ramp up. So Congress has to get more in the game. The administration has to get more in the game. But we don't have all, we, we're not all powerful in dictating outcomes uh, in Tehran. We can do much more by supporting the Iranian people as opposed to resourcing their oppressors. And uh, we're not doing that right now. But, uh, you know, so I would say it's a, you know, each, each, each part plays its own role here. And the U.S. government has a role to play in denying the resource, the space, the legitimacy for the regime, uh, adhering to the will of the Iranian people and the loud chance that, uh, you know, death to Khamenei, uh, that this is an illegitimate criminal regime. And at the same time, to give them the space, the Iranian people, the space to uh, get, to take back their country. And that is we're not doing that right now. We are appearing as an external intervener in a domestic Iranian political contest over the future direction of their country. Mm -hmm. And I think it's highly ironic that those people who are always uh, you know, warning against regime change and, you know, how we have to avoid interference uh, in um, 
in, for, in countries' uh, internal affairs uh, are, uh, you know, all for, uh, you know, giving resources to uh, this regime and they mm -hmm. don't understand or don't fully appreciate how it's perceived as an external interference in a domestic political contest in Iran to prop up an, a delegitimized, illegitimate regime that the Iranian people are trying to escape from. Right. So I think that that's how it's perceived. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, they, they actually use either a, what you want to go to war with Iran or, you know, uh, the, the, the administration wants to stay away from regime change because of what we did in Iraq. I hear these talking points all the time. And my response is always, well, look at the Trump administration. They actually did not use the regime change terminology ever. They actually used behavioral change and then they applied the maximum pressure campaign, which was extremely effective, giving the Iranian people, as you said in your own words, the space to do what they need to do. Um, speaking of the Iranian people, Arazu, this is something that I, I actually feel more on a personal level than in my work uh, as an analyst, but it seems to me that this generation, you know, grew up on their parents' generation, like many of us born after the revolution, but grew up on these intoxicating stories of this utopia that Iran used to be, right? Like, imagine what it could have been if my mom in the 70s went to, you know, university in a miniskirt and platform boots. Imagine what it could be now in the year 2023. And I think that these stories inspire this generation um, not just about miniskirts, don't get me wrong, but the stories of freedom, the stories of, of a faux nostalgia that is instilled within many Iranians and Iranian Americans uh, like us. I have this sense that this may be the last chance, meaning this generation, if they don't get their country back, then they, they don't have the same fuel to teach that to their children and their children and their children, right? You know, you look around Europe or the United States, many of us have been children. And of course, you know, we're shedding, right? It's not like they don't, they're speaking Farsi as well as we do. They're not learning the language. They're not passing along those memories. And that, you know, I could almost taste what summer tastes like in Iran. I've never stepped foot on Iranian soil, you know, and it's just through these vivid stories. Arzu, what's your sense as, as, as a career activist in, the, in just, you know, giving us that characterization of Iranians both inside and outside the country and what this generation, what it means to them to get their country back? Well, thanks, Lisa. No, everything that you touched on is exactly what we all grew up with. Um, I think I think I'd like to touch on inside of Iran first. So, with our communication and contacts inside of Iran, I mean, my goodness, when they see these protests that we hold um, all over the world, I mean, just to see the um, artists that come out and then to see that you know the American support, you know, from the government officials that are attending our protests. I mean, it's it's extremely touching for them. Um, I think that they want to be connected to us. And, and I think that that's the key is, is that this, the generation that's inside of Iran, you know, if I were to analyze 2009, um, the uprising in 2009 versus now, I mean, this generation is highly wanting to inside of Iran be connected to America and, or just outside of Iran, just to be connected to their fellow Iranians, whether it's cultural um, through communication, through social media. I mean, there's just such a high connection um, you know, connectivity that they want from us and that they strive. And I think out, you know, it, outside of Iran, um, 
specifically Iranian Americans, um, you know, and then I speak to the friends in Europe because we did as organizers, um, again, there's a team that's always behind all of these protests. We were able to connect 59 um, cities and countries total uh, worldwide for Massa Day. Um, Oh. It was challenging, very challenging. <laughs> we had an internal, we had a telegram channel for the United States, all of the states in, in the U.S. connecting. And then we had a telegram channel for outside of the United States, Japan, Australia, and everybody would give their opinions on posters <laughs> and stuff. I mean, it's amazing. The connection is amazing. And we're all connected now. Thank goodness to social media in that aspect. Um, but but I think what I, what I have noticed difference between 2009 and now is um, there's a large Iranian American community that wants to be involved. And, and I didn't see that before, which, which is why I said, I don't feel alone. We shouldn't feel alone anymore. And I think that the the cultural aspect in my job personally as a as as not just an activist but um you know a pillar in the community is is to continue to hold that culture and that um that that strong you know Iranian heritage that we have and hold that for as long as I can um whether it's nostalgia I I have posted pictures of my mom in her mini skirt and boots <laughs> on Twitter many of you have seen um but but I think that that's it, it's to show what Iran was and what it can be and that that strive for freedom and, and so I think that um I'm so excited to see that the Iranian American community and then those that have come from Iran within the past 10 years, five years, 15 years are connecting with the Iranian American community. Mm -hmm. And there's a stronger bond with us all now. Um, so I think, you know, it's different. It's different this time. The feelings are stronger and there's a strive and, and there's a, um, energy that's behind this, which is why myself as an activist won't give up. And that's what I always tell everybody else. There's time, have patience, and just um, keep fighting because that's, that's really the goal. And, and expose them, expose, you know, you know, show the images from what it was to what it is now, you know, show the struggles. And um, I think that that's a, that's a huge aspect of as, as being an activist is, is to expose, exposure is key against this regime. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of space for 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 education and, and and raising awareness, especially among Americans. I know they're actually grateful to hear. Um, that's always my advice to people. Even if you have ten followers, just share, 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 because people will see and they will learn and they will pass it along. Um, ben, I want to ask you about the the different ways in which Iranians and other uh, lawmakers have tried to push forward the agenda um, of, of whether it's just punishing the Iran regime or getting awareness about Massa Amini. We saw the Massa Act um, just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you testified um, on raising some you know, awareness about certain issues. Um, how effective are, are these practices? And, you know, is it is it a futile practice right now to even waste time with this administration? Or is it just something that should be in motion until we, we get to a different administration? What are your thoughts? You know, I, I, with immense respect, I sympathize with an argument sometimes I hear within friendly circles, uh, Arizu and Jason and Lisa, you may have heard this within Iranian American circles, which is to say, before there is regime change in Tehran, there may need to be regime change in Washington or something to that effect. Uh, I, I've heard that increasingly when it comes to what can we do, in, again, in, in practice and not just in principle to support the Iranian people. Um, but let me just pick up on a, on a you know, potential connecting thread that I think Arza mentioned, 
uh, which is about the activism of, of, of the community in this space, which is to say it should not be taken for granted at all. Um, because even on its worst day, some of the legislation that you mentioned, like the MASA Act, which has passed the House overwhelmingly, by the way, with a broad bipartisan consensus, right. that stuff on its worst day, not on its best day, on its worst day, helps to limit the political space, helps, helps to limit the oxygen in the room for the kind of unproductive things we see from the administration that we would all likely account to say, you know, are being own goals or strategic setbacks or things that we all believe are morally abhorrent because they do exactly what we want them to do, which is to shine a light, to identify, uh, to help merge policy and practice together. So on its worst day, if it doesn't do anything other than pass, it is yet another symbol of A, the engagement of the community and B, the ability to curtail the space or limit the oxygen for the other side to make their opposing arguments, to make their opposing views. And in that sense, again, as an Iranian American in DC, but not working in an Iranian American organization, I have to tell you, and I think we all share the same kind of friends in this space. You know, Jason was very active on this. You, Lisa, have been exceptionally active on this. And ours, you've been active on this as well, all in your own right, supporting the Mass Act. You know, one straw that stirs the drink between all of us is our our shared friendship and our shared bonds with an organization like NUFTI, which is great to see in Washington and is also instrumental uh, in helping to paint a different picture of the community uh, for policymakers in Washington and to help get these bills uh, over the finish line because they are a 501c4, for example, and they can flex muscles uh, in that way on Capitol Hill. And that's very productive for us and that's productive for our community. And those are novel things and those are good things and those are things we hope continue. Uh, there's not just one bill that passed uh, the, the House recently. There's, there's a couple other bills as well. There's the Fight Crime Act, which focuses on something I focus on a lot, which is a lot of Iranian projectiles and missiles and drones and, and, and things of that nature. And it's to get the community more involved in that, too, I, I think would be really great. Each of these bills, they contain a whole host of provisions that none of them are a, a magic bullet or a magic wand or a silver bullet or whatever the phrase is. But together, they're the building blocks of a better future. Together, they're the building blocks, if all of them pass, of having a human rights conversation and having a security conversation in the same room and giving them both the same oxygen and giving them both the same respect. So again, no silver bullets, but lots of productive steps forward. And this is a this is a really tangible base to build an Iran policy off of in the future if there ever is a change in right. 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Right. Jason, I'll give the last word to you. What, what are some things that can be done to uh, productively use the rest of our uh, time with the Biden administration while giving as much uh, fuel and force and momentum and, and awareness and everything else to uh, the protesters in Iran? Well, I would agree with Arazu and Benham with their remarks. I think that, and I've said this before, that the activism in the Iranian-American community on the political and on the policy level is the most undercovered story in American politics over the last year, okay? Yeah. And it has been uh, really, I have never seen anything like it. Um, this is a dynamic that, not many people in Washington quite understand. Uh, and I think that that's a function of the fact that unlike uh, my fellow panelists, uh, many don't listen to the community. They're not, they don't spend the time talking with them, right. speaking with them. And unless you do that, 
you're not in touch with the most critical constituency in Iran policy, which is the Iranian diaspora. They, are, they have the connections to Iran. They have the family, friendship connections, and they have a pulse of what's happening on the ground. So uh, that is why I think that there, need, there needs to be this sea change and paradigm shift. And so Iranian-American activists need to keep speaking out because the offices on Capitol Hill that I'm in contact with have really not seen anything like this. They are blown away with the activism and um, all of the uh, really relationship building that's been going on. And I think the community is doing a very good job in debunking myths, mm. claiming the narrative and trying to reintroduce themselves right. to American policymakers. And they have, that is keeping up that momentum is absolutely critical and should be done irrespective by the way, of who is in the White House. And uh, if that momentum keeps up, uh, policy will eventually change. Uh, and they're already proving that Iran can be a bipartisan issue. The Masa Act, as uh, my panelists, fellow panelists were saying, is a template for political and policy activism moving forward. The Iranian American community was able to amass liberal Democrats, progressive Democrats as co-sponsors, and very conservative Republicans as co-sponsors. Right. That is huge. Just today, I got word that uh, Tim Kaine, uh, who's a Democratic senator from Virginia, uh, just co-sponsored the MASA Act, along with Alex Padilla and uh, Marco Rubio. That, th th these are very important uh, developments. And I think that policymakers and people in the think tank community and elsewhere need to really um, open themselves up uh, to this uh, new force because it's not going away. I love it. Let's make foreign policy bipartisan again. I, I would love that. <laughs> make our jobs much easier. Um, so, some wonderful comments, guys. I would love to keep you longer, but we are out of time. Uh, I thank you all for your hard work, for raising awareness, for telling the truth. Uh, Benham at FDD, Jason at Yuani, and Arzu, of course, all your wonderful dedication and, uh, and organizing and activism. Thank you all for all that you do. And thank you for joining me today. Uh, you can, I will actually uh, give you all everyone's social media handles at the bottom. And for those of you who would like to sign up for our weekly podcast, go to youtube.com slash Lisa Daftari. To sign up for our daily top 10 newsletter, go to foreigndesknews.com. Thank you. See you all next time.